That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. This week we put a human face on the dangers in Japan with two American-born women who married Japanese men, stayed in that country to raise their children, and after Fukushima, evacuated to Southern California while leaving their husbands behind. Now they're both going back to Japan for the holidays. That very moving interview will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 18, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. On Friday, December 14, the Los Angeles City Council met to determine if they would pass a resolution to the NRC calling for Southern California Edison to apply for a formal license amendment and to hold an adjudicated public hearing in order to restart two reactors at the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. Ironically, earlier that day, a 6.3 earthquake hit off the coast of Los Angeles, setting off a small tsunami. Mother Nature just checking in. At the city council meeting, more than 25 concerned citizens from as far away as San Diego and Santa Cruz showed up to voice their concerns, including representatives from the Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, San Clemente Green, Dan Hirsch from Committee to Bridge the Gap, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and, of course, Nuclear Hot Seat. It seemed as though we were going to get the resolution passed, but at the last minute, Edison was able to create enough confusion about what exactly the city council was voting on that they referred it back to the Energy and Environment Committee for review. Because the NRC has a deadline of December 28 for submission of all comments, and the city council is not going to meet again until after the first of the year, Edison effectively gamed Los Angeles out of having its voice on this very important issue. We asked Resolution co-sponsor, Councilmember Bill Rosendahl, about his response to the vote on the bill. As far as I'm concerned, it is a no-brainer. Do you realize that we have a tsunami in route right now to the area? We had a 6.3 earthquake this morning. How much notice do we need to have? We need to go away from nuclear. Well, it costs a lot of money. We're Southern California. We're solar. Otherwise, when the big quake comes, it's over for everybody. I'm still worried about the Edison over there with Playa Vista, that it's already seeping into Playa Vista. God forbid we get the the one that will flush the entire community down. So we are sunny Southern California. I'm tired about talking about it. Let's go solar. Videos of our side, courtesy Myla Reason, will be posted at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Meanwhile, speaking of gamesmanship, today, December 18, the NRC held technical hearings on the San Onofre restart. The good news was that the meeting was open to the public. The bad news... It was held in Maryland, not Southern California. What, it's easier for SCE to ship their experts east than it is for the NRC to get on a plane and come out here where the public can have a genuine opportunity to give input? The webcast and limited telephone comments time did not fill that gap. Besides, 
it deprived us of the chance to watch SCE's top engineering mouthpiece, Thomas Palmisano's face twitch every time the words design change were mentioned. The pressure of the lies are clearly tearing that man apart. More from the NRC. At least two unusual events at U.S. nuclear reactors this week. Susquehanna Unit 2 in Pennsylvania had a hot shutdown reactor scram from 98% power down to zero during turbine control valve testing. And at Diablo Canyon, plant vent continuous radiation monitors were inoperable. Couldn't get any radiation readings. That was on December 17. So how many unusual events does it take before it's a usual event? On If You Love This Planet, the weekly radio program with Dr. Helen Caldicott, the December 7th edition, she spoke with Marion Pack, a Southern California activist, who said, I had a friend who worked out there at the Perry Power Plant, that's near Cleveland, and he was a welder. He was telling me what I considered real horror stories in that he said all the welds had to be photographed and documented, but when they found flaws in the weld, they were doctoring the photographs. To which Dr. Caldicott replied, that's what happened with Karen Silkwood, you know. She was a whistleblower. They were making fuel rods with plutonium in them and photographing them, and the abnormalities in the fuel rods, they were doctoring the photographs, not the rods. And she was driving with the documentation in the back seat of the car to meet a New York Times reporter when she was killed on the way. When they got to the car, the documents were missing. Good news for a change, this coming out of Virginia, as Lieutenant Governor Bill Bowling has spoken out against uranium mining in Virginia. He said, I am announcing my opposition to any legislative proposals to lift the current ban on uranium mining in Virginia. Bowling's opinion is significant as he is the state's chief jobs creation officer, and as lieutenant governor, he casts the tie-breaking vote in the Virginia Senate. hoo Quick rundown on some international news. In Spain, Spanish utility Nuclenor has begun shutting down the Garonia nuclear power plant, which was due to close in mid-2013. In Sweden, concerns over diesel backup generators have forced two of OKG's three units at Oskarshamn offline. Oskarshamn 1 is likely to remain offline until mid-January. And in Russia, Russian utility Rosenergaatom has signed a new contract for completion of the first floating nuclear power plant, scheduled for commissioning in 2016. Right. The last time Russia tried to float decommissioned nuclear power plants, they were all sunk in the Arctic Sea, and they are suspected of being major contributors to the melting of the polar ice caps. Moving over to Japan, nuclear sanity advocates had bad news from Japan's recent election when the pro-nuclear Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, managed to win two-thirds of the seats, even though it only got 42% of the votes cast. Immediately, a lawyer's group filed 27 suits with high courts, demanding the December 16 lower house election be rerun over an iniquity in the value of votes in different constituencies. Too complex to explain completely here? We'll have a link to the article on Nuclear Hot Seat. One of the contributing factors to the win by LDP was that a 1950 Japanese law forbids distribution of images and literature during the official campaign period. As a result, use of the Internet was forbidden during Japan's election campaign. No tweeting, 
Facebook, or website updates by candidates. In other words, voters in Japan were forced to choose between candidates without being able to learn about them. Australian uranium mining interests are positive that the reactors in Japan will be back online shortly under LDP administration. As a result, shares of Paladin Energy, a uranium mining company, soared more than 8% on Monday following the Japanese election results. And this final note on the Japanese elections. Former Tokyo governor, right-winger Shintaro Ishihara's ultra-hawkish son, won Tokyo's 8th district and immediately stated that he wants to ban personal radiation survey meters in Japan. Nothing like ignorance to control the populace. Speaking of ignorance, here's the latest from TEPCO. It's official. TEPCO is unable to locate the source of a leak of highly radioactive water in the crippled number two reactor at Fukushima Daiichi. A remote-controlled robot is now scouring the basement of the reactor building, but can't stay there long because the radiation is so high it can burn the thing out. TEPCO suspects the radioactive water is leaking from fractures near the pressure suppression chamber in the lower part of the containment vessel. That radioactive water is pouring into the ground, reaching the water table and or the Pacific Ocean, and coming to a faucet near you soon. At Fukushima Unit 1, workers are nowhere close to determining the state of the melted fuel, a year after the government declared the damaged reactors were in a cold shutdown state. A quake-induced collapse of plant facilities remains a threat. TEPCO cannot determine the state of the melted fuel because cameras can only be inserted for a limited time period in the extremely hazardous, meaning radioactive, environment. Despite the officially declared cold shutdowns of the reactors, according to one Japanese governmental official, there is no knowledge of where the melted fuel lies and in what state. There is a risk of unforeseen circumstances arising if another major earthquake hits. What? More major than last week's 7.3? Speaking of which, the Japanese Environmental Ministry says nearly 6,000 square kilometers of land across Japan have subsided by more than 2 centimeters in the last year. This level is judged to have a potential impact on buildings' stability. The ministry says Kesanuma in Miyagi Prefecture sank the deepest by 73.8 centimeters, followed by Ichikawa in Chiba by 30.9 centimeters. Note that Fukushima Prefecture, with the dangerous, precarious position of spent fuel pool 4 with all the radioactive fuel rods in it, Fukushima Prefecture has not been tested. Way to go, Japan. More bad news for TEPCO. They announced on December 12 that a bent water rod caused two fuel rods to come into contact inside a fuel rod assembly stored in spent fuel pool storage pool for the number 5 reactor of the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear power plant in Niigata Prefecture. The situation has the potential to cause a serious fuel failure accident. A black substance with over 40 million becquerels per kilogram of cesium have been found in Fukushima. The black substance is a combination of cesium-134 and 137, which of course has a half-life of 300 years, meaning we have over 298 years to go until the first of a minimum of 10 half-life cycles have been completed on the journey to zero radiation. Further environmental impact in these reports from our friend Mochizuki, 
and Fukushima Diary. According to the Fukushima Prefectural Government, radioactive material was measured in honey produced in Fukushima as high as 97.2 becquerels per kilogram. Of course, Japan's limit on radiation in food is 100 becquerels per kilogram, so they're still free to sell it. Cesium was measured in 100% of Fukushima white rockfish in November and December. 84% of them exceeded the government safety limit of 100 becquerels per kilogram. Of course, anything under 1,200 becquerels per kilogram is legal to sell in the United States. So at least they'll still have a market for it. Finally, in the evil numbnuts of the week category, a series of tweets reported by Mochizuki that officials make it mandatory that Fukushima rice be used in school lunches. That's a perfect lead-in to this week's very special interview. It's with two women who have lived the nuclear nightmare. Both are American-born, fell in love with and married Japanese men, and were raising families in Japan when the Fukushima disaster began. Kathy Iwane and Beverly Findlay Kaneko both evacuated with their children to Southern California, where they become active in the battle to keep San Onofre shut down. Now they're both heading back to Japan for the holidays. Keep listening to find out how their lives have changed and what they're facing with this trip back to Japan. Kathy, Beverly, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Good morning, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Good morning to you. First, Kathy, let's start off with you. Give us a brief picture of what your life was like before the earthquake and tsunami triggered the ongoing Fukushima nuclear disaster. Well, quite honestly, I really didn't even have thoughts about nuclear power, to be quite honest. And uh, the whole thing propelled me into any uh, mother's feeling to protect their children in terms of activism. But we lived quite far away from the Fukushima reactors, uh, about 380 miles in the southwest of the main island in Japan in a place called Wakayama. I taught. We live on a hill. My husband surfs. Two children lived there for 25 years. Things were, were very good. So it was a normal life. You were with your husband, and you had two beautiful daughters. This whole disaster has turned our life upside down in terms of family, not having the girls have any access to their father except for every couple of months when his work schedule allows. Beverly, you lived much closer to Fukushima. Give us an idea of what your life was like beforehand and what the immediate impact was when the disaster happened. I was living in Yokohama, and that is 165 miles away from Fukushima. It's about 200 miles away from the epicenter of the earthquake, which was closer to Sendai, which is a little bit north of Fukushima. And I grew up in California, so I know earthquakes. I, like Kathy, lived in Japan for a long time, for 20 years, so, you know, very used to earthquakes all the time. And I had never felt something this big or this long in my entire life. We we had a great life. Ryan was in international school. He had friends from all over the world. We skied in the winter up in the north of Japan, in the north of Honshu, which is beautiful. We can't go there now, here Fukushima. Okay, uh, that brings yeah. up the issue. What was the immediate impact of the earthquake tsunami and the nuclear disaster on your lives and beyond that how quickly did your lives truly change into something else 
actually, it was a really long, drawn-out, painful process because we did not have the information. I think uh, you're probably aware from reading the article about us. I came home on March 16th, five days after the earthquake with my son. And when you say home, you're talking about returning to the United States. California, because we have a summer, we had a summer home in Huntington Beach, which is now our permanent home. But I came home on the 16th because my mother collapsed from a heart attack on the 11th, on the very same day as the earthquake. Was this connected with the earthquake at all, or it was just a coincidence? No, she didn't know about it. And so we made our plan to come here mostly because of my mom, and we knew that school was canceled for it at least another month because of, you know, having to make sure everything was okay and safe. I don't think school actually got back into session until well into May at Yokohama International School. We never returned because the news, as it trickled in and as my husband started to research more and more, it became, okay, you know, I think we need to wait until the end of the year and you can come back in January. So that was last Christmas. I thought we would be coming back in January, and then it was like, no, we're not coming back in January. We're going to stay until the end of the school year. And then about July this year, we decided Ryan is not returning to Yokohama at all because the reactor number four is in a very precarious situation due to the spent fuel pool being in a um, a building that's, you know, completely destroyed by an explosion, and it really could go at any time, and that would be just a disaster of massive proportion. Kathy, what was the immediate impact of the disaster on you? And you stayed in Japan much longer than Beverly did. How did it change life over there? My situation is in stark contrast to Beverly's. The day of the earthquake, we in Wakayama felt tiny, tiny, little, little aftershocks. We're talking under three magnitude. And it was, you know, surreal watching all of the images, you know, on the television. And yet, even though we live way down south, it was very, very apparent that a tiny, tiny, you know, we had the sirens were were warning us for tsunami uh, the day of that huge earthquake up north. And it was very interesting because we live on a mountain overlooking the ocean, but it's only, when I say mountain, that's Japanese standards, it's just quite a large hill. I would say it's not even 35 meters above sea level, maybe, maybe a little more than that. And um, interestingly enough, my daughter, uh, my youngest daughter's elementary school is right down the hill from us. She walks about a two, she walked about a two kilometer walk every day to school. And that night, all of the families at sea level were told to evacuate to the school gymnasium, which really only put them about a maximum of five meters above sea level. But um, you had 500 families evacuating to my daughter's school um, gymnasium. And then if there was to be any emergency tsunami, these people would then come up our very mountain. So the first thing we did, aside from going out to, uh, you know, buy all of the kombu, and all of the necessary staples that we had a feeling, if this is a meltdown, things are going to be contaminated. We just went and bought all of 
the necessary foods. There was a lot of rumor about a huge earthquake hitting the Kansai area as well. Um, so in addition to that, we bought hundreds of rolls of toilet paper, thinking that we're going to have a whole school and families coming up our mountain wanting to use. So you were aware of the nuclear component rather quickly. How did that play out in terms of your day-to-day life in the days and weeks and months that followed? It was just by chance that we had planned a family vacation uh, of all places to San Diego. And my daughter at that point was in Michigan going to boarding school, and she was going to meet us. And this was just by the grace of God planned for, I think it was March 19th. And fortunately, Kansai International Airport, which is about 30 minutes from our house, they actually opened up. They reopened two days before we were able to take off. And then coming home in that, so what we had is new information. Um, As Beverly has said, it was just really hard to get clear information. You watched all of the updates on, on the news and it was there's no immediate public threat. There's no health threat. And it was just like, are you kidding me? First thing that came to my mind was the quote unquote China syndrome and, and that's why we ran out to go buy all of these supplies as well as my husband had to provide for his company, a hundred employees and their families in the case of a terrible situation because we were leaving the company. So Then on this side in San Diego, I thought we have a lot more information coming in from our American military, which was completely not matching the information in Japanese. Uh, In fact, you found those same reports wherever they could be translated online from the American military. And a lot of that was conflicting as well um, with the Japanese side. So So the Japanese were trying to make you, you know, don't worry, be happy. And in America, at least at that point, there was some honest flow of information available. Some, yes, yes. And it was my sort of, you know, I remember just packing a lot of stuff, you know, wondering, will we be able to return soon? (laughs) And you did return to Japan, did you not? We did return, having uh, being able to live, you know, 380 miles away. It's a little bit of a, a buffer zone, actually, you know, quite a lot of a buffer zone. And we thought we need to go back and reassess, but I, we're not going back without a Geiger counter. That was my big thing. And at that point, in my mind, because I knew so very little, Geiger counters were just going to tell us the whole story, you know, <laughs> which we now know today that there's so much more going on. So we were able to acquire a Geiger, and I felt a little bit more comfortable following the reports of the American uh, embassy to expatriates, etc. And their recommendation was obviously the 50-mile radius. Please evacuate all Americans within a 50-mile radius. And, of course, Japan was working on a 20-kilometer radius. Oh. So, yes, we did return beginning of April, And from that point on, it was just nothing but vigilance. Beverly, while this was going on, ongoing in Japan, and you were in the States, how did you maintain contact and how difficult was it to have left your husband behind? To tell you the truth, I don't really know how I coped. So much happened then, and just listening to Kathy and reliving this is really upsetting to me. I'm sorry. It it was a really stressful situation. And when it first happened, one of the my first things, um, I belong to the Association of Foreign Wives of Japanese, which is a network of about 500 of us throughout Japan. 
and thank God for that because our Kanto representative at the time went and made sure that she called every single person or emailed or made sure she got in contact with our chapter and also the people in Tohoku because we had people in Fukushima that were trying to get out that did make the escape in the taxi over the mountains with the baby and you know that whole thing so there was all the the worry about them there was the worry about my mother and then of course we didn't have telephones for the first day and the internet as far as getting in touch with those people who were actually in Fukushima and that area that took about three days Um, and we finally heard from them uh, over Facebook and Twitter and when I came back here to the state talking with my husband we usually use Skype and uh, that was fine we were able to talk I have to tell you that when we were there the first five days of the disaster it was there were so many aftershocks. I mean, we came here and we were Ryan and I were both basically seasick for about two weeks, where you would you know sit down and feel what you're sitting down on moving. And my friends left in Japan, same thing. So my husband is back in Japan and he's still de- dealing with this, not being able to sleep the night because of the aftershocks, and I'm increasingly hysterical about everything that's going on and. I'm over here, and I, I, I mentioned to you the five stages of grief, and my first thing was sort of denial. Like, I can't, I can't believe this. It's got to be just partially his hysteria because he's he's very emotional. I'm I'm a little bit more steady. Um, I have to say, over the past almost two years now, that every single thing he's worried about, and and every single bout of hysteria that he's had has come out to be true. What were some of these points? Okay, i just give you a recent example. We were planning our ski trip and thinking we're going to take the bullet train up to the north of Honshu. We're going to go to the Japan seaside because at least then we can have a little bit more confidence in the food and so forth. And my husband said, you know what, I don't want to do that. I don't want the earthquake that there are predicting to happen, we're going to be sitting in the bullet train uh, right in front of Fukushima and not able to get out. And I sort of thought, oh, God, you know, here we go again. And sure enough, the very next day, a 7.3 hit. So that kind of thing has happened over and over. I'm realizing that he's not hysterical about this, and it, it really is going on, and um, I think the most dangerous thing for all of us is complacency to, you know, want to sit back and have that peaceful life that we had before and, you know, not worry about it. We want to stop worrying about it. We want we want things to be like they were, but they really aren't. What has been the hardest part about relocating your family to California? I think for me it's it's just a strange stroke of luck or if you look positively at it, luck. If you look negatively at it, a a little piece of hell. It finally came down to January 1st of 2012 and I remember having this heart-to-heart with my family and it was just at the point where, you know, we couldn't eat some of our favorite foods and granted I do not have, all I had access to was our Geiger, but I was testing like a maniac, constantly (laughs) doubting (laughs) 
constantly um, double-checking the sources of information, et cetera. However, we had this heart-to-heart with uh, the four of us, my two daughters, and I said, girls, you know, I think this is the turning point. And my husband was very, very supportive, and we were, you know, over tears. We just said, it's time. And I remember signing the lease to our uh, present accommodation here in Southern California. Three days before an accident, there were radioactive releases reported at the end of January. I'm talking about San Onofre, and it turns out we're 35 miles downwind of San Onofre here where I live. What is this about? Suddenly I'm reading all of this information about what is called Fukushima radioactive fallout. And we know from Libby's podcast, we also know from various online groups studying radioactivity and the jet stream coming over, we know that it comes over the Pacific. The information we had a year ago was that, oh, it's it's going to the northern hemisphere. It's west and it's northern. So that was part of my idea of coming to as far south as we could get in California. So we get here and we find radioactive tuna is being fished right off of the coast of San Diego, record levels of cesium or in the seaweed. Of course, my daughter's first inclination was, well, let's go buy Japanese stuff. And I'm like, no, I am not going down to the markets that import all of this stuff, especially, you know, we have a situation where Secretary of State Clinton has worked out a very cozy relationship saying we're going to continue to import food from Japan and not test it. I did not come to California to then be importing Japanese food. And so it's a whole new way of talk about redoing your life at age 46. It sounds like it's been a tremendous struggle just to keep things on a relatively even keel. Beverly, for you, what has been the hardest part about relocating your family to California? The separation from my husband Japanese men are considered to be kind of separate from their families, but my husband was a real exception. He just had the closest relationship with my son, and, I mean, they were best buddies. And I think, you know, I just really miss having them together, and, of course, me together, too, because I... I just feel so guilty that as much as I try and do for him, I can't fill in that blank of his father not being here. I never wanted to come back here and um, finish a Ph.D. alone. I wanted to stay together. And and look, uh, you know, here we are separated. And, you know, luckily my husband um, does have flexibility in his work, and so he is able to come here and be with us, but still, I think that that's really the hardest thing. One other piece of our story is that our summer home here in Huntington Beach was down in Huntington Harbor, which is, you know, it's right in the tsunami zone. So my husband's first thing is, you have to sell that house and move uphill. So I'm kind of like Kathy in a way, because the the moment we finally moved here to this new place, which is kind of um, at a little bit higher elevation in Huntington Beach. The moment we moved here, I finally got, you know, the house fixed up and the flooring redone. And around that time when San Onofre started having problems. So we were here, we were walking on the beach, and he said, what about San Onofre? How far is that? And I went to look it up, and just like Kathy, 
35 miles away, so well within the zone of, you know, the arbitrary NRC zone of, of what a disaster would be because it's actually much bigger. So we're right in that zone, and then the problem started happening down there. So I, I felt like I had jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. And as soon as it was possible, I started trying to contact people uh Gary Hedrick and Gene Stone, and started attending protests and have become more and more involved. Um, half of the time my husband is here now, we are spending on activism, and um, that's not something I ever did before. I was a, always a goody two-shoes, good Samaritan, but I have never been what I would call a garden variety hardcore peace sign wearing activist. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, too late now. We've got you, and we're not letting you go. <laughs> In fact, none of us were, and here we are. Both of you are planning to go back to yeah. Japan to see your husbands and reunite your families, at least for the holiday. We are, and I just wanted to share with you, uh, my son, actually, he's become a little activist in his own right. And I just want to share his Christmas list part of it. I hope I don't cry. <laughs> I read it, but he writes a letter, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus, thank you for all of these years of giving me wonderful presents. Thank your elves and reindeer, too. These past two years have brought my family stress, but thanks to you, you have brought us joy. Thank you, and here is what I want this year. He has his uh, list, and it's broken up into three columns, and the first column is need. He needs a journal. He needs no more nuclear power, he needs peace, and he needs a time machine. He's, the kid is asking Santa Claus for no more nuclear power, peace, and a time machine. And, you know, I, just to me that says it all. Right? It really does. So with the two of you and your children planning on going back to Japan for Christmas, what have you done to protect yourselves? What will you be doing to protect yourselves, and how have you prepared? I'm taking one suitcase. My husband's Christmas present, which he's going to be listening to this probably, so I can't really say what it is. Let's just say it's something that will help him when there is another disaster. And he's asked me to order a case of radiation-grade face masks. He is trying to scope out all of the places where he can purchase vegetables and things that he feels that are safe for us to eat because the things that are grown locally we don't trust at all because even at 165 miles away from Fukushima in Yokohama, there are certain farm products that are so radioactive so as that they cannot even be exported. So like um, shiitake mushrooms, uh, tea, and so forth, which tells me that other products, maybe they're not so bad that they're considered radioactive waste, but they are contaminated to a certain level. Going to Japan and not being able to cook like I like to, not being able to go to those wonderful restaurants, it's going to be a different, <laughs> different thing. Every time my husband comes home, and he's only been home twice in the last eight months, uh, when I say home, I mean California, 
So when he comes home, we do a lot of apple pectin. Research points to very positive uh, effect of relocating from a radioactive spot mm -hmm. and then making sure that one is eating food that is not uh, radioactive in any way or form and then continuing a regimen of apple pectin. And what it does is it mm -hmm. pretty much clears as much as 40% of the cesium that has been built up in, in the body. And so we do a lot of that. Uh, we do a lot of detox baths and baking soda and of course, as we know, strontium is being dispersed in our atmosphere. So the body takes that in and can mistake it for calcium. So we take a lot of mineral supplements and trying to stick with a lot of juicing. I'm presently looking into moving into a small spot where I can have my own greenhouse. Don't have to worry about radioactive rains. Uh, and, and, you know, you have a plume coming over every now and then every time they release these the ongoing releases going on at Fukushima. To say nothing of what might be happening at San Onofre if they restart that thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So in terms of preparation, though, for going home for this trip, and I, and I almost am embarrassed to say this, but this is something that's been on our Christmas list. This is our biggest Christmas. It's just, it's sort of surreal my husband and I agreed that we are purchasing, and we did, and they came, and they're in a big box, and I have to unload them. They're military-grade, uh, American-made gas masks. Uh -huh. And it's wow. strange. I, I thought, you know, I I even thought, it, am I going to share this today on a podcast? But I thought, and it, I'm not one. I, I make decisions based, I know this sounds totally hippie, but I don't make my decisions visions based on fear. I, I live in a, a vision of hope. I believe that the human spirit will thrive, and I believe that we can get through this, no matter how many deaths, however much uh, radioactivity is bioaccumulated in our atmosphere in the next five years. Yes, there will be sickness, there will be death, but I believe in the end that activism, especially on a local level, is working. So, that's something that I'm unpacking and I'm taking home, and I'll leave one of those with my husband uh, because, uh, sadly, you can't get them imported into Japan. Um, I can't carry them on my, you know, into my carry-on luggage, but I can uh, pack them. And I've checked with the State Department that the Japanese side will take them away from me because it's uh, labeled or classified as American military equipment. Oh, my goodness. Do you have a, a thought you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think that there is so much good research going on right now. It's one thing to check with the EPA and the NRC and all of these regulatory agencies, but it's an entirely other thing to connect, especially if you're a woman, with other mothers and to read books that are written. Uh, there's a fabulous book uh, written by Kimberly Roberson, and it's called Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. They're simply written for the lay man, lay woman, to understand the era that we are living in uh, due to the disaster at Fukushima. There's also a petition that she wrote that now has 6,000 signatures. It's important to understand how all of this affects us and how we can protect ourselves in these new and challenging times. Um, look into your food. There are supplements. There are ways that we can build our immunity. And talk with your children. Talk about it at home. It's the first education. The first line is 
what we can do at home um, in a loving, safe, nurturing environment where you're not going to be challenged publicly for your supposedly uh, paranoid, fearful beliefs. It's it's the reality, and we're not seeing it now, but mark my words, we will see a lot more of this in the years to come, and it's important that we prepare uh, as leaders of our family. Have a Merry Christmas. Listening to Kathy was really hard because of all my friends in Japan, we don't talk about this. We can't talk about it. I know. And it's all really bottled up. They uh, refused to or they were afraid to or? You know, being in denial, trying to have it, life goes on and, and we're doing the best we can. There are some that are in, uh, you know, that are pro-nuclear. Still. And, and what am I supposed to say? I'm living here. I'm, you know, my family's very affluent. We have two homes and, you know, I'm I'm able to come over here and pop Ryan into school and some of them aren't. They depend completely on their Japanese husbands that don't have enough money or maybe maybe they're even in situations where the in-laws aren't letting it happen. Oh, that's exactly that's exactly my situation, um, Beverly. We had when we decided to make the move, there were still people coming to my area from up north, evacuating, and here I am yeah. evacuating from that area. And my husband said, "Honey, do not advertise this because there are people. They will not come. Out. And even my Japanese friends that may yeah. have fabulous degrees and may have." skills that are useful in other places around the world that could actually get work situations, there is such pressure in yeah. status quo, like you said with the in-laws. And who am I to say, get out of Japan? No, I've got the resources to get out. And there was a little pact, uh, you know, among the four of us in our family, and we said, we are leaving for the education of the children. Everyone knows why I'm leaving, but well, you can't. You, know you can't actually say why you're leaving? You have to disguise it as something else? Oh, yeah. I think her little white lie is going to be the same as mine because we had already thought about putting Ryan into high school here in, in the U.S. school. I was already, like, sort of not happy with what was going on at the international school. So wow. that's what I'm going to say to my friends is that, you know, this was just the opportunity. And, you know, some of them know. Some of them are friends with me on Facebook, and they know that I'm a rabid activist now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the beauty, though, I have to say, Beverly, the beauty in all of this, if we can find any beauty, is that in the 18 months since the disaster or longer, what I've noticed is that these people that looked at me like that strange foreigner living on the hill who just does everything so differently, although uh-huh. they were my friends, now they actually, when I when I post something about the disaster or some data or some opinion or something, I get more likes from these people. They wouldn't even acknowledge me in a conversation a year and a half ago. And it's very, it's sad that it's such a slow process, but I feel like it's those little seeds of, um, wow, maybe what that article was saying a year ago, maybe what Helen Caldecott is talking about. I have I have a neighbor 50 meters down the hill who's now posting Helen Caldecott videos, and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, and they're thinking it's time to go to Okinawa. And it's like there's a slow wake-up process happening that, to me, it's Mm -hmm. like in no shape or form is it. I told you so. It's more like, oh, thank God you're seeing the light. Now we can join. They said uh, 78% of people, even though the elections turned out badly, 78% of people are still against nuclear power. So 
um, I do see a little hope there. It's time for truth because it also puts them in a position of, I get to be in their shoes, they get to be in my shoes. We're all in this together. We can't escape this. I thought we could, but we can't. There are two C words on my mind, and one of them is compassion. I'd really like in this holiday season for people not to forget the real victims of Fukushima, which are the children, the 300,000 children that have not been allowed to evacuate and that are still living in an environment that the only thing that they can do is walk back and forth to school outdoors every day and that all the rest of their time is spent indoors because of the fear of radiation. And many of these children, 43% of them that have been tested are already showing abnormalities on their thyroids. And, uh, you know, who knows what else because the medical establishment um, is firmly set against helping them. I would really like to see compassion for the people of Fukushima, especially the children. The other C word um, kind of segues from what Kathy was saying is complacency. I would like us not to be complacent anymore. I'd like us to educate ourselves. Kimberly Roberson's book is good. Uh, I also like Helen Caldicott's book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. I think we really need to get away from what the quote-unquote experts have to say because they all have an agenda. The two of you are strong, remarkable, brave, ferocious mother tigers on behalf of your family, and that's a universal. That's something that we can all relate to, and that's so important because ultimately we must protect the children because without them we have no future. Exactly. That's it. That's the point. Well, take extra apple pectin and just say that those face masks are a new fashion accessory. You might want to spray paint them pink and put some of those little crystals on them. Hello Kitty. Yeah. (laughs) Hello Kitty, I know. Oh my God, the Hello Kitty gas mask. That's it. Good to know we can still find a laugh in all this. That was Kathy Awane and Beverly Findlay Kaneko two evacuees from Japan returning to that country with their children to reunite with their husbands for the holidays. Safe journey to them and their families, and a swift return. This report on the arrest of a major anti-nuclear figure in Japan and a request for action comes from Steve Zeltzer of the No Nukes Action Committee in California. We are taking up the case of Professor Masaki Shimoji, who is a professor activist uh, in Osaka, who was alerting people in Osaka against the burning of uh, nuclear rubble waste by the government, the prefecture of Osaka. He was arrested by the government for walking through a train station and is in jail right now in Osaka. And we feel his case is important not just in Japan but internationally because there is tremendous repression against anti-nuclear activists, against refugees from Fukushima, to be silent about what's going on, the continued contamination, and the government telling them that they've decontaminated the area and should move back to the area. And so we are urging an International Day of Action on January the 11th to protest the 
burning of nuclear rubble to demand that nuclear plants not be restarted and to free Professor Masaki Shimoji and make sure that he has the right, the democratic right, to let the people of Japan and Osaka know about the great dangers of burning this nuclear rubble. Steve Zeltzer of the No Nukes Action Committee in California. Here's today's final thought. I've now produced Nuclear Hot Seat for 19 months. Every week I provide news, interviews with experts which are unique to this podcast, often holistic healing and radiation protection information, plus attitude, in case you couldn't guess, and interpretation. I feel called to do this work, but I need your help to be able to continue. I incur weekly and monthly expenses to keep this podcast running. I take no advertising, have received no grants, no bribes, and no subsidies. It's not an easy thing for me to do to ask you for a donation, especially with all the requests you get bombarded with from worthy organizations throughout the year. Still, that's exactly what I'm doing. If you value this podcast, the information, the unique weekly interviews, the perspective that it provides, I urge you to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the Donate tab. No amount is too small. Everything helps. And the energy exchange represented by your donation will go a long way towards keeping me and the podcast going and keeping the nuclear hot seat activist voice strong and fierce in the face of the pro-nuclear propaganda machine. Thanks for any help you can provide. In honor of my two interviewees today, we'll close out with a song from the First Nations, Strong Woman Song, sung by Lisa Muswagon and Raven Hart Bellacourt. This was sent to me by Sadie Broncho, one of the First Nations people in northern Saskatchewan protesting the proposed nuclear waste dump on their ancestral lands. The song is for the strong women and men who continue the fight against nuclear insanity. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 18, 2012. Material for this podcast was gathered from ENENews.com, Fukushima Diary, written by Yori Mochizuki, Fairwinds Energy Education, Times Free Press, XSKF Blogspot, No Nukes Asia Action, NHK World English, Asahi Shinbun, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. Love you guys. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. There's now a link on the homepage, or you can click on the blog tab. It's also available on both Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages and on iTunes podcast. Share us, link to us. We are the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not go back to sleep. Bye.